Score, the podcast. The only show taking you inside the studios of the world's most celebrated composers and musical storytellers. Presented by Spitfire Audio. Oh man, we got two episodes left, this being one of them. I'm Kenny Holmes, Robert. I'm I'm Robert Emotional Craft. Because <laughs> two episodes of without a doubt. I mean, I probably say pray that Let's go again. <laughs> I can't talk. <laughs> I emotional. really can we please go again? You're, please go no, again. we're just no. You're too emotional. No. Just spit it I'm out. Too this is real. I'm, this is real. <laughs> <laughs> this has been a great season. That's all I wanted to say. I think this I say that at the end of every episode. season. The but penultimate. I love that. That's one of those big Harvard words like uh, it is Robert a big Kraft Harvard knows. Word. That's right. It's been a long journey. You know, we 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 had the idea of coming back for season three and then everything shut down and we thought, how in the world are we going to do a show? And what did we do? We did it all over the world. Um, we science the shit out of it. Yeah. It's been really cool and really fun. And we've gotten a chance to talk to some of these composers that we've been like, yeah, we should have them on, but maybe when they get to LA, but this has given us an opportunity to talk to everyone overseas. And, um, it's been great, and uh, the feedback has been great, too. So thanks for everyone uh, sending their messages in and, and tweets and emails and everything. On the show today, we're very excited about our guest. He's coming off a huge film. I think it was one of the biggest streaming movie deals in history. Um, it was supposed to come out in theaters. Greyhound, Tom Hanks' uh, big war movie that came out on Apple TV+. Plus. Uh, he also is the composer of many of the super successful and popular uh, DC superhero shows on the CW, like The Flash and Arrow and Supergirl. Uh, Blake Neely is joining the show today, so we're excited to talk to Blake. And you go back with Blake, right, Robert? I have known Blake since he was a conductor on... I think we'll get into that. I'm going to ask him. He was a conductor on something six or 7,000 years ago that I was involved yeah. in. He's he's conducted a lot. I know he conducted a lot for Hans. I think Pirates of the Caribbean and some other big oh, films. Oh yeah, yep. so it'll be cool to talk to him about some of those jobs too, because most of the guests we've had on, we've just kind of stuck with the music. But he's been involved in many of the different processes, orchestrating, conducting, and uh, that'll be cool to talk to him about. So a lot to come with Blake Neely uh, joining the show as well as always is uh, composer Carol. Hey Carol. Hello. Hello. Two, hey guys. Two medleys yes. this week. Oh we're, yeah. We were spoiled. I was late for the one next uh, last week. Good stuff. But, really yeah, cool thank stuff. You. And you got props from both Ludwig and Max Richter, which is really cool. Yeah. Very nice. And incredible comments. Everybody's starting to follow composer Carol and her medleys, including how about Christian from Spitfire? The the uh, boss man at Spitfire calling Carol out and saying, that's awesome. Very cool. Yeah, because I, I used um, Spitfire Audio's Lab Soft Piano for this uh, this week's cover, or last week's cover for Max. And Christian was like, yeah, that's amazing because he recorded that sound 12 years ago. And to hear that, I played it this year. Oh, like, that's cool. Yeah. And Labs are free, right? Labs is free, correct. There you go. So you can you, you can it. also play what composer Carol plays and what Christian <laughs> recorded. Oh, what a plug that was for a free product. Uh, Matt Schrader <laughs> joining us as well for this Hello, uh, exciting everyone. day. This is the release of the season finale 
of yeah, Blockbuster. The season finale. Um, and uh, 10 episodes. The last of those episodes is today. It's extra, extra long. Um, and it's uh, the culmination of Titanic. Um, so this whole season of Blockbuster has been amazing and uh, really, really just a ton of fun to work on. And in the episode today, we get to learn about James Horner's uh, song that he records in top secret with uh celine dion um and uh how all people don't remember this but when titanic came out it was the same day that a james bond film came out and it won the box office just barely which for titanic the biggest movie of all time was a devastating defeat um it just robert you remember this when it came out and everyone's saying oh my gosh this thing is gonna lose us so much money now and then the amazing thing that happens is it stays number one for an eternity, just about all the way through the Oscars right. and leads to this, you know, one of the, the weirdest things that defies all these box office norms and uh, really, really amazing final episode that we have um, that is uh, out today. So after you finish listening to the penultimate episode of Score the Podcast, check out Blockbuster as well. Um, if you haven't listened to it, all 10 episodes are up, ready to binge. Robert, what was that meeting like when uh, the film came out? Was there were people sweating? Do you remember that? Oh, sweat, total sweat. Um, all kinds of reasons there was total sweat. Not only had it been such a slog to get the film into release. I mean, you know, it came out in December, but it was supposed to come out in May. So now everybody delayed and we'd waited, but the money that was on the table for that movie. So when the Friday night hit and there was concern, um, yeah, it's one of those meetings where on Friday night we'd all gather in the head of distribution's office and look at the initial returns and everybody was like, you know what, I uh, I got to check out, I got a dinner I got to go to. I'll, I'll, <laughs> let's talk Monday. But Monday it was, wait, did you guys, it like got bigger every day. Friday opened at a certain level. Saturday it got bigger. Sunday the matinees were doing great business, and then it just became clear by the middle of the next week. Um, couple weeks. Couple weeks. Yeah, yep. I think it was two weeks. There's a really nerve wracking, uh, which was interesting. A story never before told that's in our episode out today, and Kenny stars in uh, in this episode. Uh, Thank you very plays much. Plays. Bill Wisher, uh, one of the the buddies of uh, Jim Cameron, um, all the way since uh, college, basically, and um, leads to a really, really dark moment for Jim. You know, when everything is looking like they gambled everything on this movie and it's going to make some money, but it's going to lose way, 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 way more because they just, you know, when you spend that kind of money, never heard of before, um, you know, it's uh, you got to make a ton to make it up. Um, even the theaters, you know, theaters keep half that money. So if you look at a film that makes back whatever its budget was, that's still losing a ton of money. Um, our bonus episode last week with Robert's former boss, Bill Mechanic, was yeah. really, really insightful because he, you know, went in and face to face him and Jim in, in Jim's trailer and they shut down Titanic for 24 hours and uh, said, this is too expensive. You got to make cuts. And that's when Jim Cameron said, let me make the last of my movie. I'll give up my whole share in it. 
And uh, and as of, uh, you know, several months after Titanic came out, Jim didn't have a stake in it. And then Fox ended up coming back and and saying, all right, well, we're going to give you a little bit more because we want you to make another film with us. Uh, so we're going to give you back a little bit of the the uh, millions and millions that we've now made off of this. But uh, gambling everything. It's a really interesting uh, final episode that we have of Blockbuster. And if you haven't started Blockbuster yet, now's a good time to because you can binge it, which is great. There, I know a lot of people yeah, are like, man, the whole thing. it's tough to wait week to week. We're so used to binging in the world we live in now. And uh, now it's all out there. And um, it's it's a great listen. Peter Boviat's sound design is just spectacular. The uh, I don't want to give too much away, but the scene with the PCP soup. Uh, oh, yeah. The, Real the spiked trippy. soup on the Titanic set was just trippy and i wasn't sure if i was hallucinating myself listening to it so go check and then it friday out. we'll do a uh, bonus episode remembering james horner um that uh we nice. recorded much of with jim himself james cameron himself when we were doing score um and uh he talked quite a bit about some of his memories with uh the late james horner um and uh and it was a really kind of interesting and, and special thing so check out blockbuster very cool. Very cool. Um, we have some score the mailbox entries to get to. We want to try and get most of those answered before the season ends. So we're going to plow through a couple of those in just a second. But before we get to that, as always, we want to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Spitfire Audio, maker of orchestral virtual instruments for film composers used by many of our guests right here on the show and composer Carol in her medleys, as we uh, saw this week. Good morning, Robert. Do you want to take your line? <laughs> <laughs> there was something about composer Carol. I know that. And um, I was... Uh, Robert's season ended of Score the Podcast like three hours Just ago. then. I was weeping off camera. Would you um, rewind, reset, and give me that cue again? Mine was clean. Just take it from the bullet point. You're good. Yeah, Kenny. Spitfire has <laughs> <laughs> right. You are Kenny. Did you have some of that PCP? Is that uh, and welcome back, Spitfire. Is something for everyone. <laughs> yeah, Spitfire is something for everyone. If you're just starting out, they have a completely free range of top quality instruments called Labs, which I use, and I know composer Carol uses. Mm -hmm. In fact. The new Discovery Edition of the BBC Symphony Orchestra is 49 bucks, but you can also get it for free by filling out a survey and waiting two weeks. It's a full orchestra at your fingertips. Yep, and Matt, you're, you're joining us this week. Are you ready to hear this? We have a deal for the listeners. Did you know about Wh this? Wh what? Can I, you believe I, this? I didn't. <laughs> 20% I do, off. I do know. I just couldn't reveal. 20% off your first purchase of Spitfire products, including the collaboration packages with the likes of Hans Zimmer, Olafur Arnolds, and the London Contemporary Orchestra. There's more than 50 libraries to check out and use that promo code. And it's not going to last forever. Our season is almost over. So who knows how they're going to, how long they're going to leave it up. So use the promo code SCORE2020. It's lowercase score 2020. And again, it's a limited time offer, so use that promo code when you check out so they know we sent you, and so you can elevate your music. And uh, after the show today, we're going to play a cue created using the Oliver Arnold's Chamber Evolution Package. 
which is really sweet. You're going to want to check out that cue. And you know so what's interesting? Around. The uh, A lot of the instruments that they're using are tools that we used when doing the score for Blockbuster, um, hmm. which we have a two-and-a-half-hour score. It's it's crazy big. We actually do have a lot of real instruments that are part of that, but um, so much of the Spitfire plugins are are just so valuable for what we're trying to do. So um, you can... Uh, Check out that original score in Blockbuster, too. Very cool. Uh, all right, let's get through some of these. We have quite a few, so let's uh, let's rally through them here. It's time to check score the mailbox. Uh, this comes from Tom in Dallas. He says, very generally speaking, how do composers get compensated by the studio for a project? Is there a standard model on budget or fee, or is it more complex where each project is negotiated? Robert, you've been in those rooms. What is it like? Is it is it based on the talent? Is it based just on a number? How does it work? It's pretty straightforward, actually. The music budget is depending on the size of the film, the kind of film. There are all kinds of asterisks next to this, but the music budget is, say, between 1% and 2% of an overall budget of a film if the film is a hundred million dollars your music budget's gonna be between a million and two million bucks out of that you have to pay for everything including the composer's fee and the composer's fee is basically based on a word that many people don't realize is essential which is their quote and their quote is what they got on their last movie which is obviously a riddle because if you've never done a movie, you don't have a quote. And that's pretty much where you accept whatever is offered. But if on your last movie, you're a big-time composer and you're giving X fee, then the studio in a reasonable situation will say, okay, we will match that fee and usually give them a small raise, maybe... A few percentage a few th- points? Yeah, a few percentage point raise. So, and that is a, if you look at the music budget, let's say the music budget for a big blockbuster movie is $2 million, which is sort of what happens. Uh, well, the composer's fee gets taken out of that pie, and then there are the songs that get taken out, and the cost of recording an orchestra, etc. So that's how you arrive at a composer's fee. Do you fee. get any of the kind of back end? How well the film actually does or does that have to be negotiated well that actually happens you rarely get the back end from the movie company you can get that from royalties you know from record sales Mm -hmm. that's a whole music business thing um but you can get back end if for example and this is film music budgeting 102 If I can't afford your entire fee, Matt, to score my film because the music budget is not $2 million, it's $500,000, and your fee is often much more than I can afford. And this is, again, big Hollywood filmmaking. This isn't where a movie costs $20,000 to make the whole movie with your friends. This is like we're, we're making a real movie here. It costs several million dollars. I may say to you, let's do this. I can't afford your entire fee, so I'm going to give you 25% of your fee. But that 75% I will make up in the movie's back end if we go into profit. Mm -hmm. So I will take a piece of the profit and apportion it 
towards your making up your fee plus mm. because I like you so much and I like your music so much it's I'm going to match your profit and I'm going to give you a little bit of a bonus so will you play ball with me on this movie take a lower upfront fee in the hopes for all of us that we make so much money you get a back end fee and strangely enough that's what happened on Titanic which is another episode but because it was so expensive and the music went endlessly, mm -hmm. the composer took a smaller upfront fee in exchange for a piece of the profits. How do you think that worked out? Yeah, that Pretty was well. a good decision. <laughs> but you never know. You really, it's a gamble. So gamble. You're, you're putting your money into uh, stock or benefits, however you want to think of it, but you're not getting it up front. Much like professional athletes get their deals structured sometimes based on uh, performance and stuff like that. Uh, thanks for the question, Tom. All right, this one is from Cynthia Ann Hurt. She says, I've been privileged enough to attend four viewings of movies where symphony orchestras play the score live. The question is, what is all involved with putting one of these on? Does the orchestra hear a click track? And do they get to practice? And Or do they have to sight read? And um, I can ex speak from experience. I worked on a show at the Hollywood Bowl uh, where we did Willy Wonka live. And yes, um, in these shows, because it's a performance in front of an audience and they have the time to do this and the score isn't secret, um, they are able to practice. Um, they do do it to click, but it does depend on what the orchestra is or if it's a band. Sometimes they, they don't use it or it depends on which song it is. Um, but yes, uh, when I was doing some editing for that show, we were timing out streamers and, and adding the time code clicks and everything into the pieces um, because it also has to time out to animation on the screens and uh, some of the different extra added production things that, that go into those shows. So generally, yeah, the, the orchestra is playing something that they have heard before and they're able to practice with the group to, to make sure they're doing it. And oftentimes it's a tour. Um, so by the time you're, you're seeing it as an audience member, they may have played this a hundred times around the world. So um, but yeah, there. I think it's probably a case by case basis. If it's a one off, maybe they're doing something special. But in most cases, if you're watching one of those tours, um, yeah, they've they've heard it before. Thanks for mm -hmm. that question, Cynthia. Uh, this one is from Philip McHugh, and he says this might be a great question for the Craftmeister. I don't know oh. if you and Philip go back, but that's okay. Philip. I think you're a great How does he guy. know just, your secret name? Just want to let you know, Philip, I've always thought your taste in names and, and The Phil respect. Meister has this question for you. Uh, when sending the score mock-ups to a director, should I also be sending notes to explain my musical decisions? And if so, how much depth should I go into? So Philip is obviously an aspiring composer, and he's wants to, he wants to know when if he's not meeting with the director in person, how much should he explain about his musical decisions? I would say somewhere, Philip, between zero and none. Mm -hmm. If there's a place in there for you to send some notes along, and I'll tell you why. Because it's all about the music, and you can explain. Who cares? Nobody's going to read your notes anyway. Oh, so he thought in measure 32, it the bass should be louder. You know, it's I'll fix it in the mix time, which is, yeah, let's just hear the record. Uh I assume that your director knows that it's a mock-up. You'd have to assume that. I'd also assume that you've had some conversation about where the cue is heading. 
But there's really no upside to sending written descriptions of how it will be the coolest thing he's ever heard or she's ever heard. You just want to send the music and cross your fingers. I yep. will add to that because I've been through that. Um, and we're we on Blockbuster, which we're finishing today. There's a huge musical cue at the end of our episode. And I had the exact same mock-up conversation with Fernando Arroyo Lascarain, who did the music for our whole series. And he sent over a mock-up. Uh, early on because um, he wanted to be involved with this season and um, no explanation to it. It was this this is an idea for what we can build the rest of the score out of. Um, I would say you could probably get away with like one bullet point <laughs> to say, here's my vision for this one thing that we could do at this time code. But like, let the music speak for itself, just as Robert said. Well, you don't want to tell someone how to feel. I mean, yep. they're either going to get goosebumps and and feel that it's the right music for the for the moment, or they're yep, going to say, totally. "This didn't hit me." And I don't think words can really do that. Just as much as when you go to the theater, no one has to tell you, "This is the sad part." Get ready to feel sad. Like the music is what's guiding you to that. So mm-hmm. the uh, the the director should probably go into that moment like an audience member. And if they don't get impacted by it, then it's not the right piece for uh, the section. Though I can't tell you one word that makes me feel better among many, but one word that makes me feel better is Kraftmeister. It just, <laughs> it kind of lands on me in a way that just kind of. Uh, so great. start all of your mock-up emails with Dear Blank Meister. Yeah, just add Meister <laughs> to the end. Uh, th- these are some great questions. Thank you guys so much for sending those in. Uh, if you have a question for the show, we have one episode left. We'll try to get to the rest of your questions um, before the season ends here. But uh, score the mailbox at epicleft.com. This is fun to be able to interact with you listeners and uh, answer your questions here on the show. Guys, I think it's time to take a break and then we're going to come back with uh, Maestro Blake Neely joining right the show on. today. All right. Looking forward to this. We'll be right back. And uh, again, reminder, Blockbuster, the season finale is out. Go binge it. Listen to it. Matt Schrader, thanks for joining us on this uh, intro of the show. Thanks, guys. We'll be right back. Blockbuster, the winner of Adweek's Creative Podcast of the Year, returns. Film is a hobby, not a career. I know, Dad. James Cameron. James Cameron. A movie for your ears. James Cameron. What, me? No, 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 no. This isn't what I envisioned. It's a bad idea, okay? About the world's most ambitious filmmaker. It has to be perfect. Just say, I'm the king of the world. What? Why would I yell that? Blockbuster. Get it wherever you get your podcast. Hi, this is David Arnold, and you're listening to Score, the podcast. Let's get back to the show. Welcome back to Score, the podcast presented by Spitfire Audio. Very excited about our guest today, and I'm so glad he has time for us. He's such a busy, busy composer. Uh, he just had his huge film that just released on Apple TV Plus called Greyhound. He's also the composer of many of the DC Comics uh, superhero shows on the CW Arrow, The Flash, Supergirl. There's so much to talk about here. Blake Neely joining the show. Thanks for coming on, Blake. Thank you, Kenny. Thank you, Robert. Carol. Oh, my pleasure. To, of course, it's great to see you again. We were talking just before the show started about the location of your studio. I know. I don't have a cow noise. Can you explain the the cow obsession? Well, I'll, it starts very easily. My uh, father was a farmer, 
And I, I spent. I think we can end here. The farm. Then I'll see you guys next time. <laughs> it's really been <laughs> Thanks great. Thanks so Blake. much. Right. We really appreciate you coming on. I know you grew up in Texas, correct? I did. I grew up in Paris, Texas. Um, and uh, I was a child of the 70s. And uh, there was no internet in the small town of Paris, Texas. But uh, eight years old, I was, I was also a classical music nerd. Um, loved listening to my parents' records. And uh, I remember distinctly, I'll tell the story, it's uh, eight years old sitting in Star Wars and thinking, I haven't heard this music. Somebody must have written this recently. I want that job. But then I've got to, you know, then it's another 12 years to figure out how to get from Paris, Texas to California. Yeah. Oh, man. Um, I bet. So the audience is clear about your cow obsession. Your studio is called Cow on the Wall. So is your Twitter handle. So this started because I have this uh, this longhorn head. I'm, I'm a UT grad and I have this longhorn head. Hook em horns. I'm doing that thing that they do. In my do. studio. Yeah, there you go. Hook em horns. Yeah. Um, Hook em horns. And I was, I was looking to register a publishing name. And I was with ASCAP at the time, and they said, you've got to give us something that no one else will have. And I just looked around and went, uh, how about cow on the wall? Because there was a cow on my wall. Uh, not technically a cow on my wall. It was a steer, but – and they said, that'll clear. And then I realized only later I was looking at a, uh, a legal document, and they had abbreviated cow on the wall to the acronym COW. I'm like, oh, that's super cool. It's <laughs> – <laughs> that's great i didn't even think of and then cow on the wall studio is cows so uh <laughs> we affectionately call it cows. that's really great <laughs> blake there are so many wonderful it, it's hard not to hear your story and think there are a number of parallels i had a similar situation where i had to come up with a name and i heard my mother say uh don't go overboard which she always said when i was getting <laughs> grandiose and so i'm overboard music um that's great but uh, I was really moved. I, I think that's the the description of how I felt when I heard that you were turned down at the University of Texas for getting in the music department because oh yeah, that's sort of a amazing. And I hope you've had a chance to extract revenge by going back there and playing. Well, scores. the reve the revenge is <laughs> no, the revenge is coming <clears throat> because I'm going to start a uh, a scholarship in my name with the University of Texas, but <sighs> not with their music department. Yeah, because I was not allowed. So that's the revenge coming. Great. Um, that's so nice. But yeah, I, I got this amazing letter. I was 18 years old that really shaped my career because it said um, I applied, I did the piano audition, and then I got this letter that said we strongly encourage you to consider another career option that's pretty blunt <laughs> and you were already had been you already had been admitted as a freshman so you were just looking for your major i was already in as a freshman undeclared um and you had to pass this piano audition and uh you know i said i don't i'm not a piano player really that's not what i'm going for i want to compose and i had all these scores you know this 18 year old kid and they said no um so this is the best letter i got in two ways one it gave me this amazing drive to prove everyone wrong love that um so i would so i would audit composition courses and i would i would spend my nights in the library studying scores they had this amazing music library at the school um and the other thing it taught me at 18 is how to handle hard rejection and that's what this business is you know <laughs> i have i still get rejected as successful as i've been it's still and you still have to you know rejection of a cue you know something you spent two days writing and you've got to learn how to handle that rejection. So early on it, it really prepared me. And, uh, 
It's literally the best letter I Did got. Did you feel that way at the time, though, or was there ever a moment? It wasn't oh, crushing at all. 18? No, crushing. Because yeah, um, I've had moments in my life, too, where like you look back on it, and the worst time of your life turned out to be the greatest thing that happened. Absolutely. But that's a pretty blunt thing for them to say instead of like, hey, keep at it. You're doing a you know good effort. Try again next year. It's like, yeah. why don't you try a different department? Well, it's funny. My I the other rejection I got. So I I um so I I went to my counselor. Said what what should I major in? And they said, well, you you've taken a lot of languages. Why don't you just become a linguistics major? Which that's not a fun job. I think probably to <laughs> you know I don't even know what that entails. But I I did. I majored in linguistics and minored in Japanese and just you know crazy stuff like that. It had nothing to do with music. But I would take as electives, I, like I signed up for a conducting course. And uh, my first time on the podium and the, the class ended, there were like 20 students. And she said, can, can you stay, Blake? And I'm like, yeah, wow. She said, I really think you should. It's taught, I mean, it's early enough. You could cut this course and take another one. I really don't think you're cut out for this. So I'm like, <gasps> wow. Like everyone God. just says, do not do music. And then what's funny is the first time I met you, Robert, I was conducting at Fox. That's how I, I actually, I was trying to remember. In fact, what you picture should remind was me what the score was. And I thought of you first as a conductor. It's actually been this kind of tumbling understanding of your talent from <laughs> first seeing you. Oh, you no, know, Blake's a conductor to where we are today. What score was it? I don't remember. I want to say it was the day after tomorrow, but I think it was earlier than that. I and uh, day after tomorrow was Tyler Bay. No, no, no. That's a day after tomorrow was a Roland Emmerich picture. Yeah. And um, so, but I think it was it was way earlier than that because um, I was. Uh, it might have been a Hans thing. The first the first big thing I conducted in in Hollywood was Pirates of the Caribbean. I know that wasn't yours, but it was on the Fox stage. So. And had you orchestrated or arranged the cues? I had done some additional writing for Hans on that movie. Um, that was just a whirlwind because, well, to back up, I yes, right please. out of college. I'll I'll make it quick because it's a long and sordid story. But no, tell the tell the tale. Did you drive from Austin to Hollywood? Well, it's in a, a tale of sixteen hour frenzy. No, it's a tale of nepotism. My best friend in college, his father was the head of marketing for Disney. Nice, and he wanted me to spend the summer with him. Um, my junior year of uh, college, and and so he said, "Dad, do you think you could get, get Blake an internship?" And so he called Chris Montan, lovely, and I got an internship, and I went to scoring sessions all summer, and I saw The Lion King recorded, and I saw uh, one of the Alan Ma uh, Little Mermaid recorded. Anyway, amazing. I go back. I'm like, I'm moving to California, absolutely. So when I I took another internship the next summer in their publishing department. And that's where I, uh, after I graduated, I came out and got a job with Hollywood records. Do you remember them? Oh, definitely. The definitely. Um, stayed there for a while. Then I went to Disney publishing for a couple of years. And then um, my, my biggest connection was I was in charge of printed sheet music for Disney. <laughs> and I went to my boss and said, um, do we send these to the composers to proof? And she said, oh, we never really have. And I said, well, I'd want to. So let me reach out to them. So I just got to know all these composers by sending them the sheet music to proof. And one of, uh, one of them was Michael Kamen. And so when I left Disney for personal reasons and we moved back to Texas, um, 
I reached out to all of them and Michael was looking to have someone put his concert library together and uh, for a tour. And can you just tell me what year or year ish? This is 96. Okay. 96. Um, so I, I spent a couple of years putting these, uh, you know, he'd send me all of his scores and I would put them in a more concert setting, just kind of reorchestration. So he called me one day and he said, Hey Blakey, you, you, uh, you must be an orchestrator. And I had not been, but I always say yes. I said, correct. And he said, well, we're doing this little thing. I'm going to send you a chart. It's just, we're doing this little concert with a band called Metallica. So he sends me a chart and I said to my wife, uh, you won't see me for the next three days. I got to nail this. And I sent it and typical Michael, it wasn't anything, you know, over, overboard, as you would say, (laughs) Robert. He just called me and said, great, I'm going to send you three more. And then suddenly I was Michael Kamen's orchestrator with the biggest. And that was for S&M? That was for S&M, which was a, which was quite a trial by fire to be thrown into, but it was amazing. And then at the after party of the show, he said, I'm, I'm doing this movie iron giant would you like to oh brad bird was such a beautiful movie oh it's a great movie that was then that was my intro blake some of our listeners you know we have a lot of composer expire aspiring composer musicians expiring too (laughs) expiring yeah we we don't we we also have listeners who are just fans of music and we did we haven't really dove into this much with anybody and had the chance to but we brushed on it a little bit with the documentary, but what can you tell us about, like in layman's terms, what an orchestrator does yeah. in the process? Yeah, and I'm happy to explain it because uh, the next part of my story is that I hadn't explained it to the person that got me into composing. But um, <laughs> I, what it is, is a composer writes, and sometimes they'll write on a piano, sometimes they'll just sketch uh, on paper. Sometimes um, they'll do the entire thing in the computer with a sequence and with and with software that makes it sound like it's supposed to be. And then you have to get that music onto a score that then you can give to the players to play. And so what an orchestrator does is he'll take the sketch from the composer and have long, long discussions, you know, long discussions with Michael. Michael is one of the most brilliant orchestrators ever. He just employed orchestrators because he was busy doing other things. Um, So I would have long discussions. It would be like, hey, this passage, I'm thinking if it was sort of like the Shostakovich 8. And so, you know, run off and you listen to that and study that and, oh, this is how you do it. Um, And then other orchestrators, it's simply getting the lines on the page. I mean, sometimes I've I've gotten sequences from a computer program that it's like, it says the flutes will do this, the violins will do this. So there's many facets and, and phases to a, a orchestrator's job. And generally is the composer, because you mentioned this, Cayman could do it, but he was busy, but is are generally composers orchestrators or is that no, a it's, select few and I, that, I think are, it's, that I ability? think it's becoming rarer, I would, I would say, um, because a lot of really great film composers are coming from the band world, the artist world, and it's... Um, you know, I've had a lot of discussions with other composers who are like, I, I really feel like I should learn orchestration. So it's a great thing to learn. Does it mean that you can't compose if you don't know how to do it? Absolutely not. Um, I orchestrated for Alan Mankin once, and he just sent me a piano sketch um, and just talked me through what he wanted it to sound like. He's not an orchestrator, but 
he's written some brilliant orchestral music. So I don't, I don't think that that, I I, probably, you would agree, Robert. Uh, Well, I think also there's, you know, so much technology that makes you sound like you're a great orchestrator (laughs) that you can fire up all the sounds of the orchestra and create demos that make it sound like, you know, more than you do. Um, It's interesting. You mentioned Cayman and his orchestration chops, because I would see him on that Kurzweil spit out just kind of the barest demos and Chris Brooks and Steve McLaughlin would put together a cue and it would be magnificent, but it was true that he knew exactly where he was headed. Well, it's exactly that team you named that really, you know, they were so fantastic to bring in this, this new kid and teach him the ropes with Michael, uh, Bob, Bob Elhai, Chris Brooks, Steve McLaughlin. I mean, that was the team. It was the team, and it's really interesting. And I think one of the interesting things about your career is that in some ways you almost reverse-engineered your moment as a top film and television composer by starting. It's almost like all the jobs that composers learn are subsequent to, hey, I can write something original and some director heard it on a record or heard it on KCRW one morning or likes my vibe or I wrote a cue and you learned all the other, I use this word very judiciously, crafts completely. (laughs) I mean, that's the way I knew you is, oh, you can get Blake. He'll do everything. He'll conduct, he'll orchestrate, he'll arrange. Well, my whole thing was that I, I didn't know any other way to get in. I mean, it wasn't, and it wasn't really that I was, I wanted, of course, be a film composer, but I told myself if I have a job in music, I'll be happy. So there were days at Hollywood records when I'm filling out licensing forms that I'm like, I'm working in music. I, this is great. And now looking back, it's sort of like that letter from UT, like the things that I learned from reading contracts and licensing and publishing and record distribution um, now that I am doing that with my own music, it just, you know, I have a better leg to stand on. It always adds up that way. I'm wondering if there was a very definable moment where someone said, hey, Blake, can you write this for me? Either a composer saying, can you take Q, you know, 4M3 and just do it, man, I'm burnt on this Q. Or a director said, how about Blake? Could he write this score? Was there a real defined, I'm now composing? Yes, there was a, well, I did, there was one uh, defining moment as, and I'll, this is the explaining orchestration to a friend. So the exact same friend, Jordan Levin, who got me the internship through his father, <clears throat> it's 2002 now, and I've been orchestrating for lots of people, Michael, uh, Zimmer, no, not yet, not yet. Um, anyway, a lot of people. And I'd also been conducting I'd, I'd done this huge thing for vangelis mm-hmm. in greece and in seoul korea fifa yeah yep and uh this methodia this giant uh oratorio thing anyway um and my friend is now the head of the wb network and uh greg berlanti was doing his very first pilot called everwood and he was looking for a composer and so jordan says to him well you should meet with my friend because he writes a lot of music for movies well, I was just orchestrating, but it is technically writing music. <laughs> Close for enough. Yeah. So I I say to I I get this meeting 
from Greg and, and I <clears throat> ask if I can watch the episode before the meeting. So they send me the pilot to Everwood and I, again, like the Cayman chart coming in, instead of sending a demo reel, I just decided I'd spend the weekend and score it. So my demo was scoring the first episode of Everwood. With real players? No, no, no. On my, I, I was very into sequencing and yeah. computer samples and everything. Um, and so that's how I got the job. And that's a really go getter way to do it, though. I mean, yeah, it's a little bold. You could have easily sent a demo and <laughs> they would have said, mm, that's interesting. OK, maybe we can try it out. But for them to get an actual piece written for it, that shows, you know, you, you're 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 after initiative. It. You're ready. Well, and it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't just a piece. It was it was the entire five acts. Oh, scored. and it wasn't that much music and it. it didn't need it needed like 15 minutes or 20 minutes. Um, and we did change some, some things, but I. Greg really liked it. And knowing Greg now, it's like, you know, if if he likes something once, he likes it forever. He's not one of those directors or producers that just, I'm just kind of tired of hearing this. It's like, once it works, it works. And he's just thought it works. And I like the guy. So that was it. And who knew in 2002 that he would become history's single most prolific television producer. It's really quite incredible. But there's, when you reverse the timeline and you look back on someone's career, it all makes sense. You know, it sort of makes sense that you and Greg and Jordan and Cayman, you know, you can say, of course. And Blake was destined to be the guy in the center of this. Um, but when it's happening, it always feels like it's what it is, which is incredible coincidences and accidents. But Greg Berlanti and you going off in the sunset, why not? Oh man, there's so many, um, and thank you for saying it that way, because to me, it seems like it's completely natural because that's, you know, I wasn't even reverse engineering. I was just trying to get there. <laughs> um, there are some other beautiful moments like, um, you know, I'm, I had done this huge thing for Vangelis and I had conducted it and it's it's was filmed by PBS and watched by something like a billion people. One billion. And and uh, little did I know that Hans Zimmer was such a huge fan of Vangelis yeah. and he'd seen the concert and I'm walking through remote control one day I was orchestrating for someone else and he saw me and said hey I just saw you on my TV but you were like wearing penguin suit and he said do you want to <laughs> do you want to conduct Pirates of the Caribbean and I said absolutely I do I and he said do you want to write on it too I said absolutely so that was just this moment he didn't know who I was but I happened to be on his TV. Can I ask you a question really quick about the conducting before we move into all of your um, composing works with a conductor? If the, if the composer writes their own music and conducts it, they're familiar with it, but much like the orchestra is sight reading. Are you sight conducting when you're conducting someone else's music or do you get time with that music ahead of time? No, I, I prefer to sight conduct and Here's why over the years I, I realized that I do like that. It was always I did it because, you know, we're writing up till the night before the session sometimes. Um, what I like about sight conducting is I'm experiencing it. Same, I'm on the same level as the players. We're not, I don't ha know anything more than them. We're all kind of, because the players are sight reading it every time. And I really like that connection with them. So when they have a question, I can, you know, figure it out with them. And that's just been a nice uh, way to conduct. When it's my own music, it's, yeah, you, kn you know it so well. Can um, I ask, um, 
dripping with envy. Are you a great sight reader? Not at the piano, at conducting, yeah. I mean, then at conducting, you can look at an entire score and kind of, because I was on, I mean, I, I remember Cayman saying, you know, measure 32, I think the violas need to transpose up an octave. And I think, oh, where is that? What What is he looking at? What's he hearing? So you can look at the entire score and know. Yeah, but I mean, that comes from years of, of you know, score study. Um, like I said, as a classical nerd and, um, uh, yeah, it's just something that, thank goodness I can do. I wish I could, I could translate it to the piano if I could play better. You know, it's, it's all about that. I could, you know, sit and read a piece of piano. I think music. that translation skill comes from taking one more course in the linguistics department. That's really what you're missing. <laughs> That's it. Um, That's it's, it. It's, it's, However, that did help when I, I was, uh, funny little sidetrack story about linguistics. Um, I was conducting a, a score in P- St. Petersburg, Russia, the Kirov Orchestra. Fabulous. And they, well, I had a translator, but they wouldn't, I knew she wasn't telling them what I was saying, just a little bit of Russian that I remembered from school. <laughs> and so at lunch, I, I quickly went and like remembered, memorized, like re-remembered the numbers one through 50 in Russian. Hmm. And so I started calling it out in Russian and they all were like, Oh my God, wait, what? And the translator, she, uh, she left. See, but that just <laughs> <Yeah>. confirms that <laughs> everything you learn in life, it, you can use somehow. It all comes back. I do want to come back to one thing you mentioned, which I'm very curious about when you said you, there will be the Blake Neely scholarship at UT and not in music. Right. Will it be in, in farming? No, um, <laughs> no, it'll be, they have this fantastic um, program called RTF, which is communications, radio, television, and film. And uh, it's, uh, it's where the film scoring program should be. Should they have one? Mm-hmm. It shouldn't be in music because I, I mean, I've taught at many of these film scoring schools and to have, you need the connection with, with the filmmakers. Yeah. You don't need the connection with the, the, the tuba players. Yeah, you'll get that later. Um, and I find it sort of wild. That, and that's why I've been talking to UT for years is you need, when you do start this program, you need it to be integrated in your film department. Blake, we got to get to some of your incredible work. I mean, first of all, of course, as I look down your opus, which is monstrous, the first thing that sticks out at me is the epic, cosmic, and quite emotional documentary esque dr ruth oh yeah that was that was a fun one um just because i looked at that and thought that's so wild i saw it i didn't know you scored the ask dr ruth documentary <laughs> of all your work it seems it's like, it's pretty epic and that woman is epic herself i know that was just wonderful um but listen i think there's a lot here to talk about i mean kenny and i both had kind of, I must admit, we had a Blake Neely love fest yesterday about Greyhound. Oh, yeah. thank you. Man, did that. And I was definitely disappointed, I think, as probably your whole crew was, that it wasn't able to be seen in a theater. When did you get that news? Because that was the original intent of the film, right? Well, we got that news in May. Um, mm. And, you know, Gary was very, Gary and Tom were very excited that it was just going to come out, you know, we were, we were done and, and they had a, it was like the biggest streaming deal ever for a film. And 
Mm. You know, we're in a we're in a point where we need entertainment <laughs> and at home entertainment, and we knew the movie would survive because the the visual effects are outstanding, incredible. Um, the sound mix was brilliant, and uh, you know, all of our I say this in interviews anyway. They're like, oh, how do you approach TV versus film? Like, I don't approach it any differently because you're going to watch the same thing on your same device. So if if Arrow doesn't sound as good as the Avengers, I fail, you know, because mm. you're... So with that, it wasn't it wasn't disappointing. The only disappointment is, I mean, it, it's a movie that deserves the big screen. Um, but we can't... I can't be upset that it was, you know, the number one movie in the world for a few weeks, you know? Yeah. So... And I'm curious what that... I don't know how early you were on the film, but there isn't a lot of time for... A backstory. I mean, they they you know invite you into a little bit about the love story and and where he wants to end up. But you're really just dropped in the middle of war, and there's so much going on. And your music is really driving that entire film. I mean, it it without music, that movie would be very slow. And it's because it's constantly tension, tension, tension. Yeah, it was it was intimidating. I will tell you that when I when I watched the I got um I got a text when they were shooting um and and gary realized this was a he realized he needed a movie that was very thematic um mm. that had a big thematic thing and i had done the decade series for them mm-hmm. uh, which which had a big theme and i I'd, I'd done uh, the pacific which my theme of the pacific was so he he would sort of come to me for big themes and he said, I've got one. And then when I watched it, I thought, well, you can't, where's the theme going to go? Like, we're in the middle of battle. But it was, and it was a, it was a fun one because you, you know, you know, as a composer, you kind of want to throw the theme up in the credits, right? And go like, here's my tune. Um, and this was one, it's like, nope, I'm just going to lay a little bit of pipe and it's going to come at the very end. So that was fun. But the intimidating part was the tension. And we would talk about it. They would say like, you know, we got a long way to go. Uh, and it's going to have to keep amping up, just like Tom's script does. You know, it just keeps getting worse. So my my challenge was to, on the like the first battle, like you've got to draw the audience in. It's got to be exciting, but I can't blow it. You know, I can't give everything I've got. So it was this exercise of of taking off the composer hat, putting on the audience hat, mm. putting back on the composer hat, and still having some restraint but be like okay i think it needs more but if i do that as the next cue how am i gonna find more so what was fun is i found new ways of making tension with my music instead of um some of the old tropes can you describe what those are because i listened really carefully and so i'm interested well one one for me is is layers and and how those layers start reacting with each other um i got into a lot of poly polyrhythmic stuff uh there's a there's a big piece towards the end that i just couldn't figure it out and i was i was i went just drove around in my car and i was sitting at this stoplight and turned green and the semi took off at the same time as this motorcycle and this is so esoteric but perfect (laughs) my brain said those two things are going to the same place at the same speed, but their wheels, because they're different sizes, are moving at different rates. And I went, I have an idea for tension. I love that. It's not esoteric at all. It's the way the creative mind works. Yeah. So there's this piece where 
where everything's playing the same thing but at different speeds. And when they enter it, and then again, that becomes a layer that interacts with the other in a different way. Um, so it was fun. It was fun. It was intimidating. It was like a puzzle, though. It was Greyhound's like a puzzle. And a lot of things you can, a lot of times you can score things not linearly. And this one was, no, this I have to score linearly hmm. because I can't get to like act four and realize that, oh, act five I wrote smaller. So I actually was um, kind of enjoyed having it on my small screen for this reason. Visually, I'm sure it's a disappointment not to see it on a big screen. But when it's on my home screen, I can indulge in listening to the entire film on headphones. Oh, you did? Which I, oh, definitely. Uh, and so I get to really hear what you're writing. I get to hear the mix, which is superb. Mike's mix is great. Mike Minkler. And I, I also, oh, it's really incredible. And it's not what is could be the case, which is, man, I can't hear the score because it's just all explosions. No, it was really balanced and beautiful. I was mostly interested in where you chose to be silent. Yeah, there's not much. There's not much, right? It's wall to it has to be wall <laughs> yeah. to wall. But there were also moments where you really you know, it it built the tension. And as you know firsthand, sometimes to have things be tense, you gotta lay out for a minute so when you come back in it means something. And I was just interested in your your spotting. I thought it was really fabulous. What but- was really great too with that is um you know, Gary and Tom have we don't do spotting sessions. They have been so like, this is my 10th project wow. with them, but they're so encouraging of like the artist do what you do and then we'll respond. Um, so he literally sent me the film and they're like, do your thing. And then I brought him over when I was done and played it down and he gave me notes and it was, uh, it's really the way I like to do it if you can, because I can't really tell you in a conference room what I'm going to do. It's like, you want me to sing that to you? I, I Let me just do it. And also, I like showing the whole arc because a film score is about the whole arc. So mm-hmm. when a director will say on 1M2, I, I don't get it. It's like, can you give me two hours? And 6M30 is going to explain what 1M2 is doing. Um, and you get this completely, Robert, from the many scores you've done. Uh but Plus if, my license plate is one M. Yeah, so. I remember that. If <laughs> if you can if you can be fortunate enough to have a collaborator who trusts you and lets you do your thing, it just forms a better bond. I think. I mean, I was. It doesn't because I have that autonomy. It doesn't make me do less. It makes me try harder. I mean, I was. I knew like they're gonna come watch this score down and it just pushes and pushes you to do the best you can we're going to take a quick break we want to talk more about uh tom hanks and your meeting and and uh, the decade series and also some superheroes <laughs> but uh we're going to pause for just a second much more with blake neely we'll be right back hey there fans of score the podcast i'm david w collins creator and host of the soundtrack show for iHeartRadio. like you i love score the podcast And the Soundtrack Show is the perfect complement if you're passionate about music for film, TV, even video games and theater. Each week, I do a deep dive into some of the greatest scores of all time, as well as some fan favorites, and talk about why the music moves us from a character and story point of view. 
We also learn fascinating behind-the-scenes stories and share the history and background that brought each piece of music to life. It doesn't matter if you're a musician or not. Music is a language that we all understand. And through our love of movies like Star Wars, Lord of the Rings, Back to the Future, or even classics like Casablanca or Psycho, we can gain a deeper appreciation for how composers are speaking to us through music, explaining why we have such a powerful reaction to the images on screen. The Soundtrack Show is available on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Alexandre Desplat. You're listening to Score, the podcast. Thanks for listening, and go back to work. <laughs> Welcome back to Score, the podcast presented by Spitfire Audio. We're here with Blake Neely. We were just talking about Greyhound. If you haven't watched it yet, get your Apple TV Plus subscription, and it's worth the watch. It's a great film, and the score is tremendous. Um, Tom Hanks's first screenwriting credit. We were Robert thought that he wrote that thing you do. What does that mean? His first screenwriting credit versus something that he may have been a part of writing. Was he? Was this like a special baby for Tom when you guys were working together? Oh, it was definitely a special baby, and uh, you know he is a he is an aficionado on World War Two. Mm-hmm. I mean that that man knows World War Two, and he loves it. Um, Almost as much as he loves typewriters, I understand. Um, and this one, That's right. this I I I read that he actually wrote the script on one of his typewriters. Mm. Um, he's got a collection of typewriters. It's pretty pretty That's amazing. Fantastic. I don't I don't I can't speak to the first screen credit. I don't I don't know. Um, I thought he did that thing you do. Also. Yeah, I I uh, I wasn't sure either because that was that was where Playtone was born. Yep, you know Gary Getzman and Tom Hanks and Deva, who I saw had a music Deva supervisor was, yes. credit. Um, I I had one more question about Greyhound before we move on. When did you record the score? And of course, I ask because we're in a period now where orchestral <laughs> recording is challenged, and this was a beautiful, I thought, and these days it's real it's yeah, real that, it sounded awful but it was recorded a year and a half ago okay. we finished the film in february of 19 oh wow and then they pushed the release because they were going to do this uh it was going to inter- intercede with um uh, a 50th anniversary of some war thing and um mm-hmm. and then we hit pandemic yeah okay that so, makes sense no, that was recorded very large orchestra and a lot of, you know, of course, because we're in the 21st century, a lot of really cool electronic. So many electronic. I mean, that w- pulses and beats and rhythms and. Scary all- sounds. and Yeah. Um, yeah, it was cool that my concept was, yeah, it's a period piece, but it, it needs to be like a modern thriller, almost yeah. a horror movie. And, um, you know, it was great that they allowed me that breadth of, of sound and, and I could put a synth on. 1940 when you score with synths are you uh trusting your own programming are you writing synth parts out oh yeah it's all it's all done in the box and uh you know i've got some over the years got some brilliant sound designers who also jump in and they're like hey what if we did this and good yeah um but yeah so i kind of like collect all these sounds first Mm -hmm. uh i even had my uh, one of my assistants who does not play tuba, I came in one morning and I said, hey, rent, rent a tuba for the week. He's like, why? I said, because you're going to play it. Nice. And <laughs> because I, one of the sub sounds was 
is actually Thor playing a tuba. As terribly as he can, and then me putting it through <laughs> all these electronics. Just fun stuff like that. All is allowed. All is allowed. In all film is allowed. Scoring. That's the coolest <laughs> thing about film so cool. scoring. How did you connect with Tom Hanks? You've done several projects with him. The the Decade series, as you mentioned, on one of my favorite themes. Also great. It's so good. Yeah, I'll tell you what. How I connected. It's a. It's another shout out. Robert will like. Um, I have the same agent as James Newton Howard. Nice. And James goes way back with Gary and Tom. And there was a, a film that they wanted him to do, and he just couldn't for schedule. And I was sitting at lunch with Sam Shorts one day, and James called and was telling him, I can't, you know, who who should we? And Sam looked across. He goes, how about Blake? <laughs> so I met with James, and James called Gary and Tom. I met with them, and, and I did this film. Oh, and, man. Uh, and that started a great relationship with James over the years. And, and that started me off with Tom and Gary. And they would bring me these little films uh, that were just wonderful, like Starter for Ten and The Great Buck Howard. Um, and then it turned a few documentaries for them. And then came the Decade series. And and Gary was always like, you know, there's, I'm going to get you the big one. The big one's going to come. And that happened this month. He True to his word. That is so great. And I want to give a shout out to Gary Getzman. I, I there are very few people I would say this about, but I, I've always wanted to be Gary. I just, <laughs> you know, when I grow up, I want to be Gary because he has such, such an interesting career starting in rock and music. Oh, yeah. And segueing to being filmmaker. filmmaker. That man is and living his best life. He really is. But um, You want to hear something crazy? Shoot. You know where his first office was? I don't know. As a music supervisor? Upstairs here in my studio. Oh, full In circle. Entourage. Full circle. Full circle. His his cousin owned Entourage. He had a music supervision uh, office upstairs, and That's, then I ended up buying the building. It's crazy. Do you know crazy there circle. is there is? I think when years from today they have pulled this interview out to research your career and life, <laughs> they will see so many magical connections. Oh man, I I feel like I'm in the Matrix sometimes. Yeah, I, no kidding. I feel it. <laughs> Well, we have some fans here on our small screen of all those DC shows. I mean, Carol, who is silently listening to all of what we're doing. And you said you have 10 on currently? There were, last year there were 10 series. And uh, yeah. And the themes, the themes intermingle, correct? Yeah, the best thing, there weren't 10 superhero shows. There were 10 shows that i was right working on. got it um and some i do myself some i do with co-writers uh sherry chung nathan bloom and daniel chan and you know we have lots of help from additional composers too so on a lot of it i'm i'm just kind of a ringleader or or as or sort of like greg showrunner right so yeah. you become um but that was an evolution because you know for years it was just me and then it was just me and my assistant but yeah, the superhero shows, what's fun about them is they do these crossover episodes. Mm. And you, uh, so you get to, what I, what I did when I design, started designing the sounds for, for Arrow, I'm like, okay, I'm going to have like a sound palette that is specifically Arrow. Then he's going to have a theme. 
and then there's going to be a, a specific like ostinato for him um and for the non-music listeners an ostinato is like a rhythmic figure um and if i do it right then i can use any of those elements and it'll still sound like arrow so when we got to the flash same thing supergirl same thing so then because people are always like how do you do the mashups the crossovers like well then it becomes easy so I'll use the Flash sound palette with Arrow's ostinato but Supergirl's theme, and then you have a mashup. And those are those are the hardest episodes, but the funnest to do. And this year we did a five part crossover, which was epic. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's challenging, thematically epic. I watched a little uh, internet video about Arrow, and I heard you say that when you first presented it, they thought it was temp or and it ended up you actually scored it initially well no on on arrow um greg i had written this long like 11 minute suite uh mm-hmm. while they were filming based on the script and greg had come over and listened and was like this is gonna be great and then but it was only he and i working on it so i was there were other producers involved and i think the story that you're referring to is i had um taken bits of that suite and given it to the editor and they were throwing it in temping and um, a trick that I learned from Zimmer. And, and so then when the other producers came in, they're like, Oh, where'd you find this? They go, this is, this is the arrow music. This is what Blake's been working on. So then I, then I went and scored it, but um, yeah, very helpful if you can get them to temp with your own stuff specifically for that show. If you can get in early enough to write, you know? Yeah, of course. How will you proceed with all these shows with the current orchestra situation? Can you do all of it in the box? Will you have all of it's always been in the box? Okay, um, so they you're... didn't have uh, except for the crossover episodes. I always push for a for live orchestra. Um, and this year, uh, I had this crazy idea to up the ante. I was like, well, what if we also add a rock band? That would be cool. Right on, and Metallica. No, I, I asked Kirk. He wasn't available, but he uh, he was definitely wanted to do it. And then I just said, my manager said, "What make a make a wish list?" And I thought, well, my favorite drummer is Stephen Perkins, and favorite bass player is Tony Canal. See if they'll do it. Mm-hmm. And then two days later, they're in my studio, and I'm right like, on. "Wow, I am in the Matrix." With or without their lead singer? Well, Stephen was with Jane's Addiction, and Tony with No Doubt. Both yep. bands weren't weren't together. Right. Um, and we just added them to the score and that's been a fun thing to do. Um, but you know, those, those kind of tricks, you know, where I learned those tricks, those are Cayman tricks. Boy, it's reach so... out to people you admire and see if they want to work with you. Earl, who was the great guitar player? He'd, he'd pull in all Eric great... Clapton. Oh, no kidding. David George Sanborn. Harrison. Yeah. San- Sanborn on lethal weapon. I was in London once I went to the pub for lunch. It was pouring rain. I came back. I'd forgotten my key to Michael's house. Door opens and Annie Lennox is standing there. She's like, nice. oh, we need to get you in and dry it off. I mean, that's oh. just the kind of life Michael lived. I used to go to that beautiful 14 Stanley Crescent. That incredible. Oh, it's the best. The best. And uh, yeah, be casual. Hey, man, you want to stay for dinner? George Harrison's going <laughs> to fall by. But yeah, that's, I love that uh, that lesson from him is, you know, just if you if you appreciate someone's work, see if you can work with them. Look at Hans. He's doing the same thing. He pulls in all those amazing Johnny Marr on different uh, scores and Pharrell and and Lisa Gerard to sing from Mm -hmm. Dead Can't Dance. Uh, 
why why not blake how valuable do you think it is for you to have worked with all these composers um before you started off on your oh, own beyond scoring, beyond like valuable picking up little tendencies yeah, beyond valuable i learned you can learn things that you like and want to adopt into how you do your career and you can pick things that you don't like and you so th- both of those are valuable um but things that i learned that aren't so obvious is how you work with a director i mean watching michael Kamen work with a director and collaborate is is an amazing thing to watch and and try to soak in watching hans with ron howard and gore verbinski and i mean it's just amazing to to take in and then uh their approach to picture and and spotting i mean some of the, my my spotting absolutely comes from watching them and learning like you know one would be like start early one start late so you kind of a take in these styles and then develop your own. Um, I was fortunate to have worked with also really wonderful human beings. No, no jerks. So that was incredible. That's where I wonder which part of show business you were in. Um, I actually saw Cayman demonstrate exactly what uh, you just mentioned. I want to, in his honor, share a brief tale of being on the Warners scoring stage. We are doing Hudson Hawk nominally together but really michael's doing it mm-hmm. he has just conducted a magnificent cue an action cue you know bruce willis jumping from building to bus to out a window and it's just rocks and it's a perfect take and he looks back at the window where the producer of the film is on the phone and the producer we both see cup the phone for a moment hit the talk back and say i hate it um Wow. And, and Michael, instead of, and I was aghast and hurt and emotional and I can't believe it. And Michael went, um, give me a minute. And he leaned over and did that thing. He said, okay, piccolos. I want you to tacit measure 17, 18, and 19. Let's not enter the drums until measure eight. And he just gave instructions to the orchestra. I couldn't figure out where he was on the score. We then said, let's go again. We recorded the same cue, but with nominal changes. The producer, who was still on the phone, cupped the phone and said, good, let's move on. And yeah. I saw it came and do that thing, that he just managed the situation. He changed it, but not really. And it was Yeah, perfect. and it's a little smoke and mirrors, but also just that, that calm thinking on your feet and like no one has to panic. I mean, I remember there was this, this uh, the first time I conducted for Hans on Pirates, and I came in, and there's all this stuff happening in the booth, and he looks at me, he goes, why are you so calm? And I said, <laughs> oh, Hans, I'm dying inside right now, but I just don't want you to see it. Um, I learned from Cayman so much about just that calm, we'll get through this, we'll make it better, we have time to change it. There was a, a fun story with Gary to that end was we were doing the Pacific, and um we were on the Sony stage and everything is going great. And he just said, buddy, I just don't think that cue's working anymore. Mm. I, just, I really don't think I go, cool. We go to lunch and they go to lunch and I just sat down and wrote another one and had Booker white there with me. And he started quickly doing parts and they came back from lunch and we played it and I go, how's that? And he goes, where'd that come from? I said, I just did it during lunch. And, um, 
that's not a bragging story. And the cue worked. It's, that's not a bragging story. It's just you, that's your job. And it's absolutely not bragging. It is your job. Every composer is listening to this podcast. Just got words from the maestro. That's what you do. That's what you do. You can't be precious. Oh, yeah. man, that cue is so good. You don't like it? Shoot, it hurts my feelings. You know, we'll see you. What I used to do at USC when I would advise at USC is, and, and they hated me for it, but I'd say, do this. If you can do this every week as you're getting started, it will help. Write something once a week that you really, really love, you really care about. Listen to it the next morning and then delete it and empty the trash and erase the hard drive. And if you can do that, you will learn not to be precious. Oh, that's so great. I've been in a room where a composer <laughs> kind of sulked when a director said, I'm not sure that works. And I thought, Oh, it stings, but it doesn't sting as much as you should consider another career opportunity <laughs> when you're 18. So it's really good. <laughs> get through it. I want to ask your guesstimate about what we're about to look at in the next year or so. Do you think there will be orchestra dates, first of all? And what would they look like? I. So not unselfishly, what I really hope we see is the Philharmonics opening up again. Mm. That's it's just brutal that that the arts programs are hit so bad. Um, I think because they can't do home stuff, you know they we're figuring out a way to do at home recording, but Philharmonic they're they're at home, yeah, and they're not playing. Um, and that includes ballet and opera. I think for film scoring, they're already already starting to try to open. Uh, Berlin's open. Nashville's open in a limited way. Um, they've tried to do a few things in town here, but it's just not the same. Let's just record the violins and then we'll bring in the cello and then let's, it's not, it's not orchestra. Um, what I hope is I hope there's, I hope there's innovation. I, I think it could change how music sounds for a while. I mean, if we're really in this another year, you might have some really creative stuff. Yeah. What about the, the, the content though? I mean, it, are you seeing any sort of less stuff being produced? Nothing as filming. we move forward because you know there was a rush to there was a rush to push all this content out when this thing first started because I think people thought like yeah. oh this will last a couple months let's take advantage of everyone at home but now all of a sudden all this content has been pushed out but like I'm wondering what the pipeline how empty it is for next I year. I think um, fortunately I, I I really love doing documentaries I think we'll see a lot of that it's you know it's usually one one person with a camera talking to another person and then stock footage. So they can do that. Um, animation is thriving. The filming, I hear the shows are hopefully going to start filming again in September, which mm. just means that the seasons would be a little truncated on episodes. Um, How frustrating for you to have this magnificent example of your opus out now and being number one and you know, any director looking for a big composer, score, drama, orchestral, dramatic thing. Oh, well, our movie's delayed. So, uh, <laughs> I mean, first of all, I just, before we go, I, I do want to give a shout out to your work on Greyhound once more and also to the movie. I really loved the movie. It I really did too. the kind of movie, I, you know, I don't want to be, uh, 
any gender specific, but it's a little boy's dream movie in that way. It's the kind of movie I grew up loving. It's exciting. The bad guys are identifiable. The good guys are going to And never win. seen. And never seen. And you have Tom Hanks. You know he's going to yeah. win. Um, I actually had to look up what actor played that horrible voice that's threatening them, <laughs> you know, just to see. Um, but I just no, love, it turned out great. And I, I mean, loved you it. asked about frustrating for me, how frustrating for for Playtone, right? That let's go make another one. Let's go, you know. And uh, but we will get out of this. We will. Thank and you. Maybe and the reset. The reset is good. I think it'll be innovating. And uh, I certainly needed a little bit of downtime. How much will you miss the cons? I mean, not a lot of composers get the opportunity to go. You know, if you score a rom-com, no one's wearing a Matthew McConaughey outfit and, and trying to get you to sign their poster. I mean, you're, you're able to meet with these fans who are such big fans of your music and what you do for these DC shows. What's that experience like for you, and how much will you miss it now that the, a lot of that stuff's getting canceled? This was, this was the first Comic-Con I have missed in eight years. I mean, they, they are really a lot of fun to go to. Um because you just you see why you're doing it. You you see who you're doing it for. Um last last year we were in a room and the panel it was four thousand people attended a composer panel. Wow. We're like, are you guys sure you're in the right room? We're gonna talk about film composing. <laughs> um but it's great. There and also, you know, it's where you launch a lot of shows, so you see yeah. the excitement. Um when I started doing the superhero shows, I'd been doing television for about uh, 10 years and never had any action figures for a show. You know, so I, I now buy toys for my shows. Has um, anybody shown I'm up at, at Comic-Con as Blake Neely? No. <laughs> Blake Neely barely shows up as Blake Neely at Comic-Con. Or do you get an action figure of you? Hey, you know, Christoph Beck got one. I they made a Funko pop. Yeah, I saw that. <laughs> yeah. for, when when's the Blake Neely arrow? No, yeah. no, I don't. I love I love I love behind the camera. I think considering your story today, not yet. <laughs> okay, I'm going to go with not yet. And I am going to tell you that I couldn't be more excited about that UT program because I now have excuses to go to Austin. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to sit in the back of the room for one of those classes one day and ask really hard questions. Really, I'm going to sit there and say, uh, what do you do when the director tells you in your first meeting, you know, I played trumpet in high school, so Oof. you don't have to worry about me. I really know music. What should you say? That's going to be my first question of whoever's lecturing in the Blake Neely. Wow. I will never say who, but I had a director show up with his guitar once, and he said, "I'm gonna." Oh. I, 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 we watched the the film, and he said, "Now I'd like to play you the the themes that we're going to use." Yeah, that is really wonderful. And needless <laughs> to say, in the uh, wonderful two decades I had, I had those conversations ad nauseum. Often, the best and most famous directors. Not the best directors, I want to say. The most legendary directors uh, for big movies would come in and say, you know, I played bass in my high school band, and so you don't have to worry about me. And they were really terrible, and it was the great directors who said, hey, man, I need you to really help out uh, and and 
show me these emotions. I was always moved by that. I did love it when the door would close, me and the director. I thought I was in trouble. And he'd say, my kid's in a band and he's written a song for the, this $200 million movie <laughs> Fox. And I'm, I'm wondering, I think it's really great but I promised him you'd listen to it and try and find a place on the soundtrack. I think that is on that upbeat note about the beauty of <laughs> uh, show business. Yeah, unless it's John Carpenter yes, making these it suggestions. It's oh, the most, the, most terrifying, the most terrifying <laughs> thing you can hear from a director is like, you know, when you do that flat five chord, like, oh my God, this is going to be, yeah. this is going to be tough. But I, I just like to say to them, like, just talk to me about the story. Talk to me like you did with the actors. Give me three adjectives. I love that. Let me go figure out how to make That's that. That's all they have to do. And I've been very fortunate to have those collaborators. And I love the fact me that, that Getzman and, and Hank say, just go do what you do. Because that's the ideal thing. They're not hiring you because you don't know what to do with the film. They're hiring you because you're the expert. You're the carpenter. And, yeah. then, they, and, then, and then they come in and produce it. Give me the notes. Do that. You like, let me, Perfect. You know, just like if I'm a solo artist, the worst solo artist thing they can do is to not be produced, not have a producer. It's absolutely perfect analogy for the process. And Blake, what a joy. First of all, just to, just to see you and reconnect. I know just to see you again. So when we're out of this, got to come over all of you. Can't wait. I haven't been an entourage for quite some time and I know it well, and I'd love to see how you've transformed it. Next time in person, for sure. Yeah. Next. Yeah. Next season in person. It also has the best bar in North Hollywood. Lovely. In yeah. In the st- in the studio. Yeah. Man, got to do it right. So that's so great. <laughs> and what fun for all the people that work with you. What a great gift that you are giving them to show what you've learned. Well, I I couldn't do it without them. And again, everyone, go listen to his score and watch the film Greyhound. Yeah. If you haven't seen it yet, it's fantastic. Guys, thank you so much for thinking of having me. This was fun. Blake, what a treat. Our pleasure. Uh, Reminder to our listeners, there's a number of ways to follow us. Twitter, at Score the Podcast. Instagram, at Score Movie. Facebook, Score a Film Music Documentary. Send us your questions to score the mailbox at epicleft.com. We'll try to answer those on the show. And stick around after the show today. We'll play you a little clip from Spitfire Audio. You can hear some different sounds to help elevate your music. Robert, take it away, man. Blake Neely in the house. Cow on the wall. What a treat. Thank you so much. Let me just say one quick thing as you're rolling out is thank you for doing this podcast and the film and everything because it's such an undervalued art form and you're just pushing it forward. And we can't do the show without people like you. So thank you. Thanks, Blake. We'll see you next time. Thanks, guys. Hey, SCORE listeners, we are so grateful for the support of Spitfire Audio. They collaborate with people like Hans Zimmer and the Bernard Herman Estate to build sample libraries that elevate your music. You're about to hear a musical demo of what that sounds like. Oh, I can't wait. And uh, as an exclusive to our SCORE listeners, that's all of you listening. Thank you very much. Spitfire Audio is offering 20% off your first order. And that's good on over 50 of their libraries. Just go to spitfireaudio.com, use it in the checkout, and you'll save 20%. And it's not going to last forever, so do it now if you're thinking about it, if you're on the fence. Do you want 20% off or not? Go do it. Uh, We're going to play you a cue right now from the Oliver Arnold's Chamber Evolution Package. Check it out. 
Again, use that promo code. It's SCORE2020, lowercase SCORE2020, and save 20% off your first order. It's limited. The clock is ticking. And uh, speaking of limited and the clock ticking, our final episode is next week. We're very excited about it. Keep an eye out for uh, our social media for the announcement of who that will be. We'll see you next week.